Sudan, Africa's third largest country, has recently made headlines resembling a nightmare scenario. On April 15th, a military conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces broke out. They had recently worked together in a 2019 coup against the then ruling president. And now, in an attempt to escape the conflict, more than 100,000 people have fled the country. My name is Elizabeth Minkoff and today we ask, what's going to happen to the Sudanese refugees and migrants and the millions that were internally displaced? Joining me today is Ayla Bonfilio, head of the Mixed Migration Center, Eastern and Southern Africa, Yemen and Egypt. Dear Ayla, a very warm welcome. Thank you. And from ICMPD, Barbara Salcher, who is the dialogue coordinator for the Khartoum process, a regional migration dialogue. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. So today I would like to look at two aspects that are relevant for migration and policy in the context of Sudan. First, we will have a look at the migration situation in and around Sudan. And then we will also look at the Khartoum process and how ICMPD is involved in it. Uh, diving right in, Ayla, you have co-authored a paper on this exact topic, migration in Sudan after um, the spike of the conflict. Could you give us a brief overview of the conflict first and then I would like to talk about the migrants and refugee situation uh, as well as its geopolitical impact. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm pleased to be joining you this afternoon. So as you mentioned, on April 15th, conflict broke out in Khartoum and several other cities across Sudan between the Sudanese Armed Forces, the SAF, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, led by Lieutenant General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, also called Hemeti. Tensions had been escalating between the two leaders since they joined forces during the 2019 coup against Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, centering on the RSF's refusal to integrate into the army and its ramp-up of power. The RSF's movement of soldiers and weapons into Khartoum and other areas of the country in recent weeks, and its attempt to capture the strategic town of Meroe with its large airport, central position within the country, and proximity to the electric dam along the Nile, ultimately triggered the outbreak in fighting on April 15th. Now to refocus on our actual topic today, could you give us an overview of the findings um, of the paper that you just released on um, the migration situation in the country? Our article explored the impact of the current conflict on six broad categories of movers. First, those trapped or whom we call involuntarily immobile, those newly internally displaced, IDPs who were re-displaced because of the outbreak in fighting, Sudanese refugees who were already outside of Sudan, Sudanese who are currently fleeing across Sudan's borders to neighboring countries, and the sixth group are Sudanese migrants already abroad who might stay there or engage in onward movement. Right. Now, um, let's look at this uh, group, the first group you mentioned, the 
uh, involuntary immobile. So that doesn't necessarily ring a bell uh, to me. What does it mean? Well, involuntarily immobile sounds like quite a complicated term for a not so complicated thing. It, it basically refers to people who want to move but are unable to do so, likely because they lack the, the resources or capacity to move. So in the article we discuss, uh, which was published on May 4th, I should add, we break down all these different categories of movers. And what I'd like to do today is reflect on what's been happening since the 4th of May. Um, what do we see uh, evolving as, as the conflict has become protracted? So in terms of those who are trapped or involuntarily immobile, we saw that the the ceasefire, however imperfect, did allow some uh, to, to flee um, areas of Khartoum, uh, particularly hard hit by, by fighting. And for that reason, you know, an, an easing of this, of this immobility for certain groups. That being said, the continued outbursts in fighting and no firm or durable ceasefire in place means that many Sudanese will continue to be involuntarily immobile. And even if a ceasefire is maintained, which does not look promising given today's news, skyrocketing prices, especially for transportation and fuel, has meant that most do not have the means to migrate, especially across borders. Fuel costs have tripled since the start of the conflict. And just zooming in on a couple of examples, we see a number of Sudanese uh, being reportedly stranded at the Sudan-Egypt border, unable to make the crossing, and also in Port Sudan. Uh, and and their, their immobility is a direct result of these steep price increases, but also uh, increasingly high fees charged by smugglers. And so we should anticipate an expansion in, in, in the number of people trapped and potentially a worsening dire humanitarian situation in these key locations of transit near the border. Back over to you. There must be massive humanitarian help underway. What's the situation like at the moment? You're right. Uh, humanitarian actors, UN agencies, NGOs, they're all setting up in many of these, of these key locations and, and developing a response, uh, particularly in Port Sudan, which has become a key entry point um, and place where, where humanitarian actors can first touch down in Sudan, but also increasingly at the, at the Sudan-Egypt border. Although it remains to be seen whether this ramp up in assistance can keep a pace with the extreme needs there. Do you know how many people um, are involuntarily uh, immobile? It's really difficult to estimate uh, this number. How about the, the other group, the internally displaced? I think you have numbers here, right? Right. So as of yesterday, May 30th, IOM estimated that 1.2 million people have been internally displaced within Sudan since the outbreak uh, in fighting on April 15th. And to put this into perspective, on May 9th, this figure was just over 700,000, which shows a continued steady increase in internal displacement. This corresponds to expectations that 
internal displacement will far outweigh international movements and other kinds of mobility patterns linked to this conflict. And I should point out that this number far exceeds UNHCR's planning, initial planning figures for 600,000 new IDPs by May. Um, in only the first week of May, the number of new internal displacements more than doubled from 340 to 700,000. Besides continued clashes in West Darfur, continued displacement is expected in and from Khartoum uh, and in and from the cities of Finiala in South Darfur, Zalinji in Central Darfur, El Fasher in North Darfur, El Obeid in North Kordofan, uh, where local contexts continue to be volatile. Uh, but as of yesterday, most IDPs have been living, uh, leaving from Khartoum around let's say 70%. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I am, I'm looking for words, but it's really the numbers are skyrocketing and it's a bit shocking. Let's talk about um, the international migrants and refugees. What can you say? What did you find, uh, find out here? There is not so much that currently we hear in the media. As of yesterday, estimates anywhere between 330 and 345,50,000 people have left Sudan since the outbreak and conflict. This includes, although the figures vary depending on, on, on the sources, approximately 175,000 new arrivals in Egypt, followed by approximately 150,000 in Chad, 85,000 in South Sudan, and 35,000 in Ethiopia, also 14,000 in the Central African Republic, and we're starting to see some displacement to Libya. So far, around 1,200 people have been recorded. This number has more than tripled uh, since the beginning of May, when we had figures that were closer to 80,000, and it's expected to grow further, which is not surprising since it takes a, a longer amount of time and greater resources to be mobilized by people by migrants and refugees to engage in these longer distance movements. Could this potentially lead to tensions in the neighboring countries as well? It's certainly a scenario that we are monitoring closely uh, alongside countries continuing to keep their borders open to receive refugees and migrants, which is absolutely crucial. Uh, an example of this is that Earlier this month or mid-month on May 17th, Egypt launched uh, its refugee or the refugee response plan for Egypt was launched, uh, initially covering a six-month period. And the plan aimed to assist 350,000 Sudanese refugees and 10,000 third country nationals or migrants from other countries. And this was, this was developed in consultation with the government of Egypt. Now, the current statistics show that already the 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 figures have reached 46% or you know nearly half of what they're of what they're planning um so countries so far have shown a great willingness to to receive and begin to 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 plan for for influxes are there any scenarios in which uh, you would also see a further movement towards northern africa slash um europe these kinds of longer distance movements uh, require a greater amount of resources um, and, of course, aspirations to mobilize. 
So we expect that increasing number of Sudanese may decide to undertake this kind of onward movement, either from Egypt towards Libya, Tunisia, and across the Mediterranean. But as of right now, we're not seeing uh, seeing them in in the figures, uh, in the migration figures from these countries or in the top nationalities uh, uh, of arrivals. Um, the small number of direct arrivals into Libya since the beginning of the conflict seems to hint towards the difficulties that Sudanese are facing to enter eastern Libya and move onwards. And I think we should remember that uh, the, the Libyan army under the command of, uh, of General Haftar and his Tobruk-based government had been accused of providing weapons and monetary support to Sudan's RSF uh, and is therefore actively taking sides in the conflict. While this accusation was denied at the end of April, Sudanese fleeing out of Sudan may perceive Libya as an active participant in the conflict and they might not see it as a viable option to, to move onward. And while an expectation was raised that maybe better off and well-educated Sudanese could consider moving and relocating to other East African capitals. So not just thinking about movement towards North Africa and Europe. So far, uh, we're not seeing any official figures on, on influxes in, in cities like Nairobi or Kampala in the region. Right. Often forgotten in countries in crisis are those refugees and migrants that are already in the country. And for them, this is a particular situation and challenge as well. And this is something you mentioned, I think, in the paper too. So what's the situation like in Sudan? Uh, you're right. Refugees and migrants uh, caught up in the conflict are often not our first, um, they're, they're not getting the media attention that let's say other, other groups are. Uh, and they're in particularly vulnerable situations. They often don't have the same kinds of support networks in, uh, as Sudanese nationals because they're outside of their own, own countries and, and maybe they've been completely delinked from, from the support networks in their countries, especially if they were refugees in Sudan. And this makes it really difficult for them to know where to go, um, how to leave, uh, combined with their existing vulnerabilities. So, so the issue that we previously discussed around involuntary immobility is a big one for this group. If fighting continues in major refugee hosting areas, and Khartoum is one of them, uh, it, we should expect increasing numbers of refugees, but also migrants in Sudan, um, who are able to do so to flee. But they, they essentially have three options, to find a safer place within Sudan, to return to their home country, which may not be a viable option for refugees, and I'd like to return to this point in a second, or secondary displacement to another country. But this would require that they have the, su the sufficient identity documentation to make these kinds of moves. So zooming in on the issue of returns, um, we see a lot of uh, figures rising around the number of South Sudanese and Central African refugees uh, being forced to return. So I, I believe the estimates are around 72,000 South Sudanese uh, have been forced to return so far to South Sudan and just over 10,000 Central African refugees, according to UNHCR. But 
I have to stress that these individuals may not see themselves as returnees. And in the case of South Sudanese, they might not even see themselves as South Sudanese because they might see Sudan as their home. And, and there's a lot of, let's say, more complex and nuanced reasons for this linked to, to the original um, partition of the two countries. So we can't assume that their movements into Sudan, if we just focus on this country uh, for a second, are linked to any kind of durable solution. And MMC has received reports of South Sudanese actually transiting the country to seek refuge in Uganda because they do not see the country uh, as a viable place to, to return to. The other uh, key issue to to potentially focus on here uh, is the situation of Eritrean refugees trapped uh, in Sudan, which is an increasingly worrying one. So while other nationals like Kenyans, Ugandans, and Somalis have been repatriated by their respective governments, Eritreans remain in Sudan because returning to their country of origin is simply not feasible and would likely incur high protection risks if they were returned. Some sources have reported an increasing number of Eritrean refugees going missing in Kasala, which is in the eastern part of Sudan near the border with uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, where they allegedly have been captured and or kidnapped either by Eritrean authorities or by human traffickers. And so far, the government has been accused of forcibly repatriating more than 3,500 Eritrean refugees in Sudan since the start of the, of the conflict. Back over to you. Thank you for this um, comprehensive description. It seems like this um, vacuum of power that uh, currently exists really creates so many threats for civil uh, civilians. What is currently even possible? What is currently being done um, by the international community to help resolve the situation? Just you know, very briefly. Well, for some countries uh, that have the capacity to do so, they've organized the evacuation of their nationals. Largely, this has been confined, though, to um, countries in North America and, and Europe and less so to, to other countries of origin. Um, But international actors, I think, have been uh, concentrating their efforts on the border, receiving people who are able to cross the border. Unfortunately, with respect to trapped populations, there's, there's uh, much fewer options on the table for what international actors can do because their own access is, is heavily restricted by the fighting. Another issue that you have described is that Sudan has also been usually a country that had served as a country of origin uh, and transit for migrants. So what is the impact there to, now? To answer this, we need to remember that Sudan is one of the most geographically strategic countries on the continent vis-a-vis -vis migration. It links East and the Horn of Africa with North Africa. It links the Sahel with East and North Africa. It's positioned on the Nile between Ethiopia and Egypt. It has access to the Red Sea. It really is the, the confluence of so many key locations and Sudan borders seven countries, Egypt, Libya, Chad, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. With, with the outbreak in fighting, 
given Sudan's geographic positioning, there is no way that the country cannot continue to be a main uh, corridor of transit for those seeking to move along the central Mediterranean route. Uh, nearly all refugees and migrants must transit Sudan. And places like Dongola and Atbara are key locations within the country for people moving north. And what does this mean? What are the key implications uh, of this? It means that movements are going to get far more dangerous through the, uh, through the country. Refugees and migrants may get caught up in the conflict. Uh, smuggling networks might become more exploitive and take more dangerous routes as they also try to, to exact uh, greater resources from, from refugees and migrants seeking to transit the country. I think in a more worst case scenario, we might also see that if the conflict persists, uh, as local armed groups and militias join in, uh, and as supply lines continue to be to be hampered, um, and and local communities need to raise capital, they might turn towards a kind of Libya or Yemen style model where. Uh, migration uh, is used as a, as an income generating activity, and what I mean here is that that um, money is then extracted and extorted from migrants and refugees as a way to 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 raise capital, and and this is really talking about the more kind of exploitive uh, smuggling practices that we see in these other countries. Thank you very much. This was super comprehensive. And it also leads me to our second guest today, um, to Barbara, who is um, with the Khartoum process, I think, um, working on tackling the issues that you've just mentioned. Um, once again, Barbara, welcome. Um, Can you, first of all, tell us what uh, the Khartoum process is? When was it set up? How many states are participating and so on? Thank you, Elizabeth, and uh, for having me uh, today uh, to discuss this very important issue on uh, Sudan and the situation of Sudan. ICMPD is the secretariat for many migration dialogues. Amongst them is the Khartoum process. Um, it was founded in 2014, first during an African Union regional ministerial conference focusing on combating human trafficking and smuggling of migrants, which was followed by ministerial conference in November 2014 in Rome, where also European countries, together with the Horn of African and East African countries, started the this dialogue called the Khartoum process, so the name initiated um, due to the first conference in Sudan held in 2014. Mm -hmm. And how many countries are participating? Members of the Khartoum process are all European Union member states, as well as Norway and Switzerland, and from African side, no North African, East African and Horn of African countries. Also, the African Union Commission and the European Union Commission are part of, of the dialogue. We do also have several um, organizations who are attending and are part of, um, of the process, such as UNHCR, IOM, EGAT, uh, and UNODC. The main um, aim of the regional dialogue is uh, to provide a, a political platform between countries uh, of, of Africa 
uh, and Europe on, on migration-related issues. Why was uh, Khartoum chosen as a name for the process? The place where the first uh, African Union Regional Ministerial Conference was held uh, was in Khartoum, and usually dialogues or, or policies, legal frameworks do have Uh, the name of the said um, place of the conference. For example, the Joint Valletta Action Plan was uh, due to a meeting in Valletta, uh, Paris agreements, etc. So there is often uh, the names of dialogues or from, from um, international or European uh, legal frameworks are named after the place where they have been initiated or kicked off. What is, uh, is Sudan also participant of the process? How does it work at the moment? So, of course, Sudan was a very crucial member or is a very crucial member of the Khartoum process, not only because of, of the, let's say, kickoff um, and the name giving of the process and the dialogue, but um, it is, uh, as Ayla mentioned, uh, a crucial uh, geopolitical country in the region, um, connecting the Horn of Africa, East Africa, towards North Africa, and then, of course, migration routes towards Europe. And that's why it's a very important member of, uh, of the Khartoum process. Additionally, the governance of the dialogue is, uh, is composed by a, uh, by a steering committee, which Sudan is part of currently yeah. to the the military coup it has been suspended by the african union commission and since the commission is also part of of the dialogue um subsequently it was not um, able to invite sudan to our meetings Was there any practical cooperation uh, still ongoing or uh, that's completely on ice at mm. the moment? Of course, informally we have been in contact with people and our counterparts in Sudan. However, due to the military coup and the changes in the different um, positions within um, the ministries, who are, of course, our main uh, counterparts and focal point uh, in the process, it was more challenging after the coup. Does it have any impact on the work of the Khartoum process as such? We do organize events uh, around uh, migration or on the topic of migration in various countries, although, of course, not in Sudan uh, currently. And, uh, and due to the suspension from the African Union Commission, we also cannot extend the invitation to Sudanese representatives to attend our meetings. And the current situation in Sudan, how is this um, anticipated and how do member states react? What are the migration challenges that they see? So basically, uh, the situation in Sudan is in impacting all of our African member states uh, from, from the Khartoum process, but also secondarily for all European countries as well. So basically uh, having Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Libya, part of the Khartoum process, they are all now affected by migration influxes from, from Sudan. And of course, mainly South Sudan as well. Um, and secondary, um, also 
countries like Uganda or Somalia are um, seeing or feeling the, the impact of it. Um, two weeks ago, we had um, a meeting in Uganda where also uh, the government officials uh, mentioned they will be ready for new influxes from South Sudanese uh, having being basically returning um, back from Sudan but not staying in South Sudan and migrating possibly to uh, to Uganda uh, as a secondary movement. What's the EU's take on it? Is this a discussion also between um, the African Union and the European Union within the uh, dialogue? Well, what we try now to set up um, is uh, a meeting in the framework, in the margins of uh, a, a steering committee meeting we will organize soon uh, on specifically the topic of, of Sudan's situation and the impact. Uh, where we have the European and also the African member states attending, meaning that uh, uh, that this discussion will be taking on also um, in in the in the dialogue. Uh, there is no similar platform such as the Khartoum process where you bring together on a neutral basis countries of Africa and Europe uh, in on on one table. Okay, so this is uh, extremely useful right now. The most probable future outcome now of this uh, conflict uh, in view of the Khartoum process, what maybe it has some potential also to bring topics to the tables that have not been discussed before. What do you think? Since the inception of the the Khartoum process in 2014, the region was often uh, facing conflicts and uh, different um, political uh, turmoils uh, that have been led to migration flows and uh, and Im impacted actually the whole region and not just one country. Of course, we do all hope that, um, first of all, uh, the, the, the conflict within the two military groups can be solved in the sense that there is no fighting anymore. Secondly, of course, uh, what has been was promised before what was looked promising before the military coup is having um, also a civilian or half civilian government in place um, that then allows for for more stability and uh, of course security for for the people and subsequently then of course uh, having um, a Sudan back in the table on the table and also back in the in the process as a as a partner. Uh, country mainly because, as Myla mentioned before, the corridors or the the migration flows don't stop at the border. Rather, it's still a, a transit country, and uh, and due to his its geopolitical uh, important location, it will be always quite very important uh, country for for the region and and subsequently also for for the Khartoum process. Ayla, what do you think in terms of migration um, and migration challenges and possible solutions? What are the scenarios that you have in mind for Sudan and the entire region? Well, given that it 
appears that the conflict will not cease anytime soon and that we are continuing to 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 exist in this uh, scenario of of protracted conflict then any any thinking around um, solutions to my to migration or perhaps it's better to say um, what what is the appropriate uh, response uh, to the conflict while it is ongoing um, should consider the wide range of categories of people on the move in order to make sure that we are effectively reaching all the different kinds of refugees, migrants, displaced people, um, particularly those involuntarily immobile who are all impacted by the conflict. I also think any any response um, to the migration situation that the that the conflict has created should be regional in its scope because of how um, already the the crisis has taken on regional dimensions people are moving further along the routes even outside of the east africa region uh, so it, we can also think that a solution should involve a roots based uh, response or one that's at least sensitive to that so we we have to consider then working together with other regions and other countries and so i think these two two aspects are pretty critical to any any shorter term or medium term responses to to the conflict Dear Isla, dear Barbara, many thanks for joining me today. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Sudan will remain very high on the agenda of the international community and international organizations and NGOs. We keep our fingers crossed that in the meantime, despite the current fighting, a sustained solution for peace will be found in the very near future. Once again... Joining me today were Ayla Bonfilio from the Mixed Migration Center Thank you. and Barbara Salcher, Project Coordinator of the Cartoon Process. Thank you for having me. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in and see you next time.